Amen. Thank you, Terry. So our scripture passage this morning is a very familiar one to many, Psalm 23. So if you want to turn there in a the Bible, you can, you can do so. Uh, if you want to grab one of the Bibles that's in front of you, you can, you can probably find it there. Psalm's typically in the middle of the Bible, close to that. And you'd want to look for number 23, but it's printed for you in your worship folder as well. And it'll be on the screen behind me as I read. If you're watching from home, it should be on your screen. And so there's no excuse for you not get your eyes on the text as we're reading together from Psalm 23. Let's read. A Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is uh, the word of the Lord. Would you say with me, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Let me ask you a question. Just something to ponder. How aware are you of God's personal and active presence in the details of your day-to-day life? How aware are you of God's personal and active presence in the details of your day-to-day life. Now, that might seem a strange question to ask, but in fact, Christianity would say that it's essential for your personal and emotional well-being. If we are made by God, then one of the ways that we're made is to, is to be aware of the ways that he is active and personally involved with us as we go about our days. And so I just would ask you to consider that as we go along this morning. Take an assessment of your own life, of how consciously aware you are of the fact that he is, in fact, personally and actively present day to day. Uh, Somebody recently asked me which of the Narnia books is my favorite. That's a really hard question to answer. Uh, I responded by saying that the answer changes every time I read through the series. This last time through, and this is probably controversial to some, but it really was The Horse and His Boy. Now, if you're not familiar with C.S. Lewis's fantasy series, The Horse and His Boy is a story about a horse and a boy (laughs) trying to make their way home to Narnia. And throughout the journey, they have a series of encounters with lions. Everywhere they turn, there seems to be lions that are terrorizing them. On the first night, they're chased by lions off the path that they were meant to be on, uh, and into, you know, on an alternate route where they ended up finding them, them, their traveling companions, which had been lost to them previously. They become separated from them. Another time, Shasta, who's the lead character, he spent a sleepless night in a graveyard because he spent all night cowering next to a gravestone, hearing lions prowling in the dark and just sure that at any moment they were going to come and attack. And then at the end of the journey, when they had spent their strength, they were again attacked by a lion and it swiped its claws at the horse, at the horses and the horses found new strength to push to the end and escape from the enemy. And Shasta saw all of this as a series of misfortune and that's where he was wrong. 
He saw this as a series of misfortunes, and he could not have been more wrong, because at the very end of the book, he got lost in a fog, and this is the scene. He realized that a thing was walking along beside him, and the thing could tell that he was down, and it invited Shasta to tell his sorrows, and because he was in a little bit of a funk, he was more than willing to do so. He began to go through the lifelong litany of bad things that had happened to him. It was a full-blown complaint, full of self-pity, pretty gross as you read it and that the thing it spoke up as he's talking and he said I would not call you misfortunate at all and that really annoyed Shasta he said you don't think that it was bad luck to meet so many lions and the thing said there was only one lion and he said how do you know and then the thing said because I was the lion And it's a really powerful moment because as he's realizing this, the fog around him begins to lift and the mist, it says, turned from black to gray to white. And as it did so, he saw that indeed it was Aslan, the high king above all kings that was walking alongside of him, revealing the true nature of the events that he had been through. And this is how Lewis writes it, which it's not possible to improve upon, so it's better for me to just read it to you. He said while he had been talking to the thing, he had not been noticing anything else. Now, though, the whiteness around him became a shining whiteness, and he knew the night was over at last. And he turned, and he saw Aslan, and it was from the lion that the light came. And no one ever saw anything more terrible or more beautiful. One glance at the lion's face, and he fell at its feet. He couldn't say anything, but then he didn't want to say anything, and he knew he needn't say anything. And he lifted his face, and their eyes met. And then instantly, the pale brightness of the mist and the fiery brightness of the lion rolled together in a swirling glory and gathered themselves up and were gone. But the thing was, is Shasta was changed. And the scene is the theme of the book, which is why I like it so much. There were all these scary things that Shasta had encountered, but when he interpreted them wrongly, that's when he got into so much trouble. He saw all of these things as misfortune, as a series of events where there was just a bunch of bad luck, when in truth, in truth, they were part of the rescue. And that was the lesson that Shasta had to learn. He had to learn to live with that kind of perspective, which he himself later made part of the telling of his own story as he unfolded the details to his family once he was safe inside the city. And he made mention of Aslan's hidden presence and all of those details that before he saw as misfortunes and bad luck. And he learned a very important lesson. And these are his words. He talks about Aslan and then he says, you know, he seems to be at the back of all the stories. And God is at the back of all of our stories, too. The word we use for this is God's providence. That word means that God is present and active in all that happens in our lives, in the good and the bad, in the big stuff and the details. And Psalm 23 is a meditation on God's providence. Notice, as you look there, that it is not really a prayer. So again, we see modeled for us what Martin Lloyd-Jones meant by handling yourself, which he believed to be the main art of the spiritual life, that you have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself. Instead of listening to your worries and your fears, you talk back to those things, to your own heart, with the truth about who God is and what he's done and what he has promised to do. And in the case of Psalm 23, you talk to yourself 
to properly narrate your life because the way you make sense of the details. Now, get this. The way you make sense of the details is by remembering the bigger story, not the other way around, which is a huge temptation to allow the grief or the terror or the confusion of a single event or moment or even season to become the main storyline by which you understand your life. Psalm 23, though, is the true story of God's involvement in the life of every person who belongs to him. The details are different, but the themes, and most importantly, the ending, is always the same. Now, I said that it's not a prayer. It's actually not true. In verses 1 through 3, David is talking to his own heart. Look there. Then in verses 4 and 5, he begins to talk to God. And then in verse 6, he goes right back to talking to himself again. And so what we've been calling the Godward life is the ability, and it is learned. It's something that you have to practice and learn. It's the ability to, on the one hand, talk to your heart about God and also to talk to God about your heart. To talk to your heart about God and talk to God about your heart. And it's best done simultaneously, back and forth, as David does here. And so I want you to see Psalm 23 models exactly this. Now let's take this in reverse order, though. It it models for us first how to talk to God about our hearts, and then also how to talk to our hearts about God. And those are the two points of the sermon this morning. You'll see them in the outline that I've given to you. But just before we get into the details of the text, and by the way, there's so much here, there's no way we can... We did a series on this, Terry and I were talking... In, in um, 2017, I think, seven sermons. So there's seven sermons worth of material here. There's actually about 20 sermons worth of material here. So we've got to be bird's eye, upper level this morning. But before we get into all of that, let's make one more point. And that is that John Flavel, in this, he's a 17th century English Puritan Presbyterian. He wrote, wrote a famous book called The Mystery of Providence, in which he makes the argument that I'm making, that it takes some amount of conscious effort to remain attentive to the fact of God's providence. And the reason being, as the title of that book suggests, is that it is mysterious. It's not obvious. Not because God's hiding in some way, but because what he is doing in the sum of all things is just too big, and you and me, we're just too small. And so we need to be constantly reminding ourselves of what God has said he's doing, and then interpreting our circumstances through the lens of his promises. Otherwise, like Shasta, we might begin to view our lives as a series of unfortunate events rather than, as John insisted, which we read this past week, that it is grace upon grace. Grace after grace after grace. Like the rolling of the waves on the beach in Florida. Now, this is especially true in hard seasons. William Cooper, who was no stranger to Dark Nights of the Soul, he wrote a very famous hymn called God moves in mysterious ways, highlighting the same truth that Flavel was calling attention to. And the most famous line in that hymn says this. It says, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. So the good and the bad, both, come from God's smiling face. The problem is sometimes it's hidden. It's mysterious. We're too small. We're too sinful. We judge the Lord by feeble sense. We do not see things as they really are, which is why Psalm 23 is so important. It teaches us how to keep God's smiling face in view. 
and you do it, you keep God's smiling face in view first by learning to talk to God about your heart. So let's start there. You keep God's smiling face in view by learning to talk to God about your heart. Look at verses 4 through 5. Let's just start in the middle of the psalm where David says, he, 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 he's talking to his own heart, and then he starts to talk to the Lord. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he addresses the Lord. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows, and so forth. Now, David is obviously, if you read through the lines there, battling fear. He's anxious. He's worried. There are people who want to destroy him. He's face-to-face with some kind of suffering, or at least he's anticipating it, which is a crucial part of the life of faith, by the way, 1 Peter 4. He knows that there will inevitably be valleys, that things are not okay because things are never totally okay, right? There's always something that's life in a fallen world. And so you weigh the, the way you handle the negative emotions, your fear and your anxiety, your grief, your regret, whatever it might be, is to bring the real you before God in prayer. You focus on being real, not necessarily right. Don't worry about that so much, at least not at the beginning. You just express yourself as honestly as you can. Everything you're afraid of, everything you're worried about, everything that makes you angry, everything that's frustrating you, because it is not a lack of faith to communicate these feelings to God. It is an act of faith to do so. Now, we have a, very, we have a sanctified version of this in this psalm. David is very good at this. In other psalms, he's far less composed. And so in many ways, maybe it would be more helpful for us to look at those because they would more match our experience. But here he is. Look, he just notice he's settled. He's confident. Even in his praying, he is expressing his confidence and his trust in the Lord, which is probably why we like this so much. It's an ideal we hold up and be like, oh, maybe I can get there one day too. In verse 4, he says, I will fear, fear no evil. For you are with me, and then he goes on. And you, you read that, at least I do, and you think, okay, how does that happen? Like, how do you get there? Like, some of that in my life, please. You know? David says, I'm, I'm confident and sure that God is with me. David knows God is with him. But how does that happen? How, David knows God's with him, but how, how so? Well, he knows that God is with him because he's developed a habit of being with God. In prayer, now think about this. You learn to not be afraid in God's presence, no matter what dark valleys you pass through, by being present with him. And then watch, by talking to God about his heart this way, the the suffering gets reframed. David begins to look at his life and he begins to see God everywhere, his active personal presence. In the bad times, verse 4, or at least the potential bad times, and then in the good times, verse 5. And so we need to just kind of... Look at each of those together for a minute. So in verse 4, he refers to God's rod and his staff. Now, these are the tools of the shepherd. And the rod, think about it, both hands, the shepherd, you know. The rod was a mace or a club that the shepherd would use to whack wolves or bears to keep them away from the sheep and protect the sheep. The staff was a long stick that the shepherd would use to whack the sheep. When they started to wander off or act up or play the fool and get them back into line. Now, this is David's way of saying and dealing with his sufferings by talking to God about about his part in them. Because the Bible nowhere says that because God loves you, he won't let you suffer. I have bad news this morning. It's exactly the opposite. Because God loves you, he will bring suffering into your life to discipline you 
So don't despise the discipline. Don't become weary and let your heart get hard toward God when he whacks you with his shepherd crook. When you're going through some hard time, don't become hard-hearted about it. And you do that by, by continuing to talk to God about it, by keeping your heart open to him, by developing a habit of prayer to talk about these things. Uh, I haven't used this illustration in a while, and I was reminded this week, might be familiar to some of you, but Elizabeth Elliot told the story of a sheep farmer in northern Wales who every year would take the sheep and dunk them into a large vat of antiseptic. And uh, he had to completely submerge the sheep to save their life from the parasites and the insects. But of course, if you're a sheep and this person that you trust is taking you and dunking your head underneath the water, it does not feel like saving. It feels like drowning. And Elizabeth Elliot is watching the scene unfold and she begins to write. She says this, she, she, she narrates the event rather um, beautifully. She says, as their Lord and master was pushing their head under, drowning them, at least as far as they could tell, their panicky little eyes would look up over the vat and it was easy to see what they were thinking. What is God doing? Now, of course, she saw the scene as a parable. So she goes on and she says, I've had some experiences in my life that have made me feel very sympathetic to those poor sheep. There are times I couldn't figure out any reason for the treatment I was getting from my great shepherd whom I trusted, and like those sheep, I didn't have a hint of an explanation. The shepherd has to do that to the sheep, but there is no way the sheep can understand. There are really only two options. They cannot get the antiseptic treatment and die, or they can trust the shepherd without explanation. The whole problem is that there's a gap between the intelligence of a shepherd and the sheep. But there's an even bigger problem. There's an even bigger gap between us and our great shepherd in heaven. We may never understand, she says. We may never know. And when you're face-to-face with suffering, the temptation is to accuse God and to shut your heart down and to shut off communication. The text, however, is an invitation not to sit around wondering like those sheep, what is God doing? But instead, to ask him. To talk to him. To express your worries and your doubts and your objections. Because, you know, you may not be able to fully understand what God is doing, but you can know him in the unknowns. And he, God may not be able to fully explain it to you, but even so, he does promise to be with you. And that's the most important thing. Now, the same thing goes for the good times. If that's how you get through the bad times, then look at the good times, verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows, and so forth. Now, this is the language of thanksgiving. The language of thanksgiving. And I've said, and this is these are a little bit, so don't, this is little overly simplistic to say, but still needs to be said that you overcome, according to the Bible, you overcome anxiety through gratitude. You fight depression by rejoicing. Remember, you can't make yourself feel happy, but you can make yourself rejoice. You go to war against your own sin and unbelief by remembering and then numbering the evidences of God's smiling face all across your life. Now, don't miss the point of verse 5 here. It is saying that for every single person who belongs to God, your life is an overflowing cup. Grace upon grace. So don't be a glass half empty person like Shasta. Like me. (laughs) Brad, that was a little bit too much of a laugh. 
I'm caught here. I acknowledge that. This is, this is my problem. This is where sin started. It's where all sin starts, having a scarcity mentality. Think of the garden scene. Look at all of this abundance. You can eat of any tree but this one. What do you mean not that one? Are you holding out on us? I don't think God's got our best interest in mind here. We probably shouldn't trust him. We better take care of ourselves. Scarcity mindset. In the midst of all of that abundance. Five barley loaves and two fish to feed 5,000 people. Big problem. Until it's not actually. And that's the scarcity of resources, you see. And yet, you read that story, which we read this past week in John chapter 6. And yet, five barley loaves, two fish, 5,000 people, and yet everyone ate, and there were 12 baskets left over just to prove a point. Now, what's the lesson of that story? With Jesus, there's always enough. With Jesus, there's more than enough. John 1.16, again, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. So what is the truth of your life? I'm not asking you how you feel about things right now. What is the truth of your life? Your cup is overflowing. I know it may not feel that way. At your weakest, at your worst, you are an overflowing cup. Because the person who has everything but not God has nothing. But the person who has nothing but has God has everything. I had lunch with a young man this week. He graduated with my daughter. And he has had a tougher life than probably just about anybody else in the room. He never knew his dad. A few weeks ago, he was assaulted by his stepfather. He's not living at home. He's working two jobs. Gets up and goes to work about 7 o'clock in the morning. Gets home about 10 o'clock at night every day. Headed to Wheaton College to play football and to do ROTC there. And he's going to get on a plane all by himself. Nobody's going to drive him to the airport to see him off. No mom's going to go with him to make sure he gets settled in his dorm room. Nobody has an Amazon wish list for him where he's getting all of his stuff. And yet, I'm sitting with that boy, and he is overflowing with gratitude and joy. He's all smiles. He doesn't feel sorry for himself. He's full of faith. He says, his cup is overflowing. And it is remarkable. And if it's true for him, it's true for every single one of us. I mean, do you see David's theology coming through in these two verses? He is praying his theology. He is managing his fear. He's increasing his gratitude, keeping God's smiling face in view by talking to God about his heart. But then, not only does he talk to God about his heart, but he also shows us how to keep God's smiling face in view by talking to our heart about God. Now, the commentators all agree that there are two metaphors in Psalm 23, but they're divided about which is dominant. Because you see here that the Lord is a gentle shepherd, and then you also see that he's a generous host. And I don't know that we have to pick between the two. They two have very, both of them have very important theological and spiritual lessons for us. So let's just look at each as we finish this part of uh, our time together. So the Lord is my shepherd, David begins. Look there, verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd. And it's really a remarkable image. It says something about us, actually, first. It says something about you. I'll make this personal, I think, this part. It says something about you. You can't take care of yourself. You can't provide for yourself. You can't protect yourself. You're a sheep. And you know what sheep are? Sheep are small-brained and defenseless. You should feel insulted. I mean, it's an insult. 
But more importantly, it says something about God, that the task of shepherding was given to the lowest ranking member of the family. It was the work that no one wanted, and yet God calls himself a shepherd. And so the Lord, the I am, the inexhaustibly great God of heaven, king above all kings, he is gently, gently, gentle and lowly and kind and always near to his people. It's wonderful, the image. Now come back to that phrase in verse 5, you prepare a table before me. It gives you a sense of what is meant by this. Philip Keller, who is a shepherd uh, who wrote as a pastor and, uh, and wrote a book about, of reflections on Psalm, Psalm 23, he believes that this table imagery here, you prepare a table for me, verse 5, refers to the high plateaus where the sheep range, sheep range in the summer. Out west they're called mesas, which is Spanish for table. So the shepherd, he says, has to begin early in the spring to get the grazing grounds ready for the sheep. So he goes out day after day, laboring to survey the land. He spreads salt and minerals at strategic spots to keep the sheep well-fed and strong. He picks out the camping sites where the sheep will be safe near water sources away from predators. The shepherd goes through these summer pastures looking for poisonous weeds and, and spends days and days plucking them out of the ground one by one to make sure the sheep don't accidentally eat something that might kill them. He clears out the watering holes, the debris, to make it as easy as possible for the sheep to drink and to rest. And then when all of the preparations have been made and when everything, all the work is finished, then he leads them up to the table land that he's prepared where they have everything they need. And more, it says he stays with them and looks after them and watches over them to make sure they're safe. Did somebody say, wow? Because that's it, yeah. So listen to Keller, Philip Keller. He says he, the shepherd is on the job. On the job, 24-7. He sees that his sheep are properly provided for in every detail. He will go to no end of trouble to supply them for them with the finest pastures, ample winter feed, and clean water. He will spare himself no pains to provide shelter from storms, protection from ruthless enemies and diseases and parasites to which they are so susceptible because he has no greater reward, no deeper satisfaction than seeing his sheep contented, well-fed, safe, and flourishing under his care. Indeed, this is his very life. The Lord is my shepherd. This is what God is doing every day, each day of our lives. We wake up every morning into a day already prepared for us by God himself, our good shepherd. And this is the truth that David is reminding his heart of, that we live a given life, that our days are not of our own making. We have a shepherd who is taking care of everything, which means you have one job today and one job tomorrow and one job every day from now until the time you see him face to face. And that is to wake up and to rejoice and to be glad in the day that God has made. And here's the thing, we know something that David didn't know. Not fully, we know the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said that there are plenty of people who will say they love you, but they're too concerned about themselves, and they'll turn on you in a moment's notice. When the heat gets turned up, they'll leave you hanging, but not him. He is the good shepherd. He goes on to say, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep Jesus Christ, this is what the Christian gospel tells us. This is what, the essence of Christianity is this, that Jesus Christ 
died on the cross, bearing the penalty and the curse for your sins in his own body, that he was raised and ascended into heaven, and from heaven he has poured out his spirit on all who believe. The third person of the Godhead who now resides in all of those who belong to God. And it's like rivers of living water, Jesus says, gushing out from the springs of your life, flooding your whole life and the lives of those around you with the love and the goodness of God. I mean, think what spirit dwells within you. Think what father's smiles are thine. Think, right? Think that Jesus died to win you. Child of heaven, canst thou repine? But you got to think, see? You got to talk to your heart about these things. You got to bring the truth home. You got to talk to your heart about God and about the things that are true. And then, not only the imagery of a gentle shepherd, but the imagery of a generous host. Again, the table, verse 5 you prepare a table before me. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. You see, in our culture, if you want the community to know that you're rich, you would buy an expensive car or a beach house, something like that. In the East, both in ancient times and even today, if you want to show off your wealth, the way you would do that is you would host a meal, invite everybody you know, put three times as much food on the table as the guests could possibly eat, and just show off. Years ago, I went on a retreat weekend for the whole weekend. There were people to serve you for every meal. Those of us that were going through the weekend, there were about 30 of us that went through the weekend. There were about 100 people there that were there to serve 30 people, so three to one, something like that. But you would be served every meal. If your drink got halfway empty, before you could even say something about it, somebody would come around and fill it back up. If you offhandedly were just talking and you know, saying stuff at the table, I'm like, man, I really feel like a steak for dinner. There was somebody there who would go out to the store and there'd be a steak on your plate for dinner. The whole weekend, you didn't open a door for yourself. Um, I had one friend who went, and she was so concerned because she drank Diet Coke with lemon. And just to make a point, the very first night at dinner, they put a big bowl with about 75 lemons in the bowl in front of her so that she just knew she was going to have all the lemons she needed. Like, it's okay. We're going to take care of it. Why don't you just relax? Let us serve you, right? And, I, and it's a, it's, it makes a big impression. Everything was taken care of. And the point that, that they were trying to make is that that is what life with God is like. Again, if you need further proof. I'm not saying it's what life with God feels like all the time. But it is the objective reality of what life with God is like. And if you need further proof, think about what we know of God and Jesus who said, I am among you as one who serves. That is astounding. That God in coming would come not to be served as he should be, but to serve and to give his life away in love to make his enemies his friends. Do you think you can trust his heart? Now I could go on and on, but I have a feeling you've heard enough of me today. (laughs) Thank you, that's sweet. I've heard enough of me today. Let's just go with that. So what's the takeaway? What's the takeaway? Well, if God is a gentle shepherd, and if he is a generous host, then guess what that means? Then you can just sit down and relax. Take a break from running the world for a minute, because there, this is where all of the fear and the anxiety and the pressure and all of that is coming from anyway. 
Now, this is actually much harder than you might think because sheep, they are naturally very nervous creatures. They are jumpy. They don't lie down. It says here that the Lord makes, you see the wording? The Lord makes me lie down. They have to be made to lie down because they're very, very nervous. They're always afraid something's about to devour them. Some wolf is going to come out of the you know, forest and, and eat them. And they, they just won't lie down unless, unless they know they're perfectly safe. But listen again to how David puts it in verses 1 and 2. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. You see, by talking to God about his heart and by talking to his heart about God, David was able to get himself to a place of rest and quietness. You see, if all things come from God, and if he is a gentle shepherd, and if he is a generous host, then there's no reason to be afraid, no matter what happens. John Newton has this famous line where he says, everything is needful that he sends, nothing is needful that he withholds. Let me say that again. Everything is needful that he sends, nothing is needful that he withholds. So, tranquilo. Tony Ellswick's not here this morning. He would be so proud of me. <laughs> tranquilo. Relax. Take a break from trying to run the world. One more thing. It doesn't say the Lord is a shepherd. What does it say? The Lord is my shepherd. Martin Luther said Christianity is a matter of personal pronouns. For a lot of people, the difference between not experiencing this kind of life that David is describing in Modeling Force here and actually coming to the place where you become conversant enough and you really do begin to experience, experience some of the contentment, peace, and joy, and so forth of all of this is the difference between God going from being a shepherd to being your shepherd. That my makes all the difference. Is God yours? Are you his? Through faith and repentance, have you made the shepherd your shepherd? And has these sheep become his sheep? If so, then you, can, then you can sing along with the hymn writer when he said, The king of love my shepherd is, whose goodness faileth never. I nothing lack if I am his, and he is mine forever. Amen. Pray with me if you would. So, Father, we would admit that many times we uh, still live as if we're all on, we're all on our own, there's no one there to protect us, no one there to provide for us, that there's, that there's uh, nothing holding at bay the terrible forces of darkness that would seek to devour us. And we live jerking our head back and forth, keeping our eyes on the horizon, worrying about whatever may come next. And we look back on our lives and we see only the bad things and not the good because sin warps our perspective and our hearts in truth are so hard to you toward you because of the, the sufferings we've had to endure that we just misinterpret and misrepresent where we've come from. And so it just we, then we cast all of those doubts and worries into the future and it just makes us so afraid. But here we see, in fact, that we can learn from David how to re-narrate our lives in such a way that we bring ourselves, that, that it brings us, that you, not a, that you bring us, you make us to lie down and bring us to a place of contentment and ease and peace 
and quietness of soul. How desperately we need that this morning for some of us just by expressing maybe for the first time faith and repentance. But for many of us to, to say, well, Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. And would you, would you bring a little more of this quietness and rest and trust into our lives so that indeed we might be people who honor you and all we say and do because you are worthy of that. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. That is the truth of my life. Would you come now as we sing these things, we sing to our own hearts and make them, make them true for us, make, make, our, make our hearts to believe the truth of them in more profound ways than before. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Who knows what deep, dark valley you might have to walk through this week. But here's the other thing we know, that if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, that though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you can fear no evil, for he is with you. That is the promise of this benediction, as he sends us uh, with the promise of his face and his presence, no matter what might come this week. Receive this benediction. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he is worthy of it. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.